Hello, and a warm welcome to South Asia Chat. I'm your host, Dr. Imran Ahmed, a visiting research fellow at the Institute of South Asian Studies here at the National University of Singapore. It has been a roller coaster this past week in Pakistan, first with the opposition galvanized in its drive to put forth a motion of no confidence, then the dismissal of the motion followed by the dissolution of the National Assembly. A Supreme Court ruling then saw the reversal of these actions and the unfolding events culminated in the dramatic end of Imran Khan's tenure as Prime Minister. Here to help us make sense of the commotion, upheaval and change is our very own director, Associate Professor Iqbal Singh Sevilla. Iqbal, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to join you, Imran. So I wanted to begin by uh, placing things in a little bit of context. Imran Khan assumed power in 2018 with promises to build a new Pakistan, one which would draw on an Islamic welfare system inspired by the pre-modern Medinan state under the Prophet Muhammad. Khan spoke of stamping out corruption, opposing political dynasties, helping the poor and standing up to the West. Four years on, he was facing mounting opposition, growing disillusionment, and finally a no-confidence motion which ultimately led to the end of his prime ministerial term on the weekend. Perhaps we could begin by taking stock of the past three and a half, four years of the PTI government and its successes and failures. How did his term as prime minister change Pakistani politics? Well, as you, you rightly noted, um, Imran Khan came to power promising to build a Naya Pakistan or a new Pakistan, one that was, um, in his words, uh, based on the Medinan model of the polity, social, pol- uh, social political structure developed by Prophet Muhammad in Medina. And uh, this was his own interpretation of, of the Medinan model. Um, and um, at the core of this uh, Naya Pakistan was um, a idea of construction of an Islamic welfare state that would fight corruption, that would pro- build a health infrastructure which um, would provide um, heavily subsidized health care for Pakistani citizens. And this, I should should add here, is um, was an expansion of a model that uh, Imran Khan and his party had actually developed in Khaibar Bakhtun Khwa, and it's got known as the Sehet Sahulat Scheme. Um, but he also promised to create 10 million jobs, create uh, affordable housing, etc. And um, there was much enthusiasm for Imran Khan's um, Imran Khan's uh, message of building the Naya Pakistan. For for some, they they looked at his um, at his philanthropic work that he had done in building a cancer hospital, the Shokat Kanun uh, Memorial Cancer Hospital and Research Center, which is named after his mother, and is the largest cancer hospital in in Pakistan, and actually takes care of 75% of the cost borne by patients uh, being treated in hospital. Others looked at his uh, charismatic uh, innings as the cricket captain of of, uh, Pakistan. And there was much promise um, in this, um, in, in his political rhetoric as well. And there was also the the, the potential of um, fundamental political change because 
When Imran Khan's party, the PTI, won the elections in 2018, they effectively broke the hold of that the hold that the two established political parties, the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz or PMLN, and the PPP or Pakistan's People's Party, has had over national politics. Um, and there's also another aspect to it. If I if I could if you can indulge me for a few minutes. When Imran Khan's party won in 2018, this was only the second time in the history of Pakistan that an elected government had handed over the reins of power to another elected government. So there was much promise um, underlying uh, this this uh, Imran Khan's victory and the, the, his party's victory, the PTI's victory. Now, we, we come to the gist of your question, which is about how we evaluate what has happened and how did this promise sort of sour in some ways. So let's perhaps break it down into two, two aspects, the economic aspects and the political aspects. Let's start with the economy. And to, to kind of understand the challenges that Imran Khan had to face and is facing and some of the criticisms that he's, he's received, we, we have to actually um, bear the economic context uh, in mind and, and maybe look a little bit at the economy that he inherited when he came to power. He, he essentially inherited an economy that was in the throes of a crippling um, current account deficit. Um, estimates say that when he when he took power, the current account deficit was almost uh, 18 billion US dollars and Pakistan's foreign reserves were only sufficient to cover less than two months of his imports. Pakistan was confronted by a situation where there was very little revenue accruement um, within Pakistan, and this was primarily because of the low taxation, um, low amounts of taxation that the, the government collected. So one could say that when Imran Khan's government comes to power, uh, he was confronted or they were confronted by very few options. And when he came to power, he had promised to tap on the natural and human resources of Pakistan, encourage foreign direct investment, build an export-oriented, uh, or rather uh, expand on the export-oriented production. By and he, and he took some steps in this direction by offering amnesties to investors in various sectors. And the idea was that by giving this amnesty money that uh, was perhaps uh, not totally legal would come back into the into the economic circulation and he was looking to Pakistanis overseas to pump money back into Pakistan as well. He also promised to bolster the agricultural sector. And another important aspect was that when he was standing for elections, he was very critical of the CPAC model. Um, and CPAC here refers to the China-Pakistan economic corridor. But upon coming to power, he saw this as a, as a means of uh, developing infrastructure and foreign direct investment in Pakistan as well. So he threw his weight behind these projects. And he also um, tried to invest heavily in the construction sector. And in fact, one of his promises was to build affordable housing. And this, in fact, this is uh, this push by the government to actually support the construction industry itself led to somewhat of a construction boom and also a boom in um, certain sectors linked to, um, to construction, such so as the concrete section, uh, uh, sale of concrete, etc. He also received praise for developing this uh, medical welfare scheme, which I mentioned, the Sehat Sehulat uh, scheme. However, Despite um, many of these nice-sounding promises uh, and, and visions that he laid out, he was con he was constrained by the economic realities. And one of the problems for him was to um, have 
to deal with this um, the current account deficit. And when he was standing for power, he had been very critical of every party before him for, in his words, going to the world with the begging bowl. However, he himself um, had to take loans um, to, to basically to support the functioning of, um, of the government. Um, so Imran Khan's government had to take loans from Saudi Arabia, from UAE, from China, and the IMF. And the IMF loans tied um, his government to specific structural reforms and called for the imposition of austerity measures. Now, herein lies a problem immediately because um, his own vision of the Medinan model, um, which, you, which you alluded to earlier, um, is basically a welfare state structure, which um, does not jive very well with the IMF, IMF's idea of uh, structural reforms and austerity. Now, Another issue linked to his sort of political agenda that played on the economic sector was that he seemed to be overly focused on the what I would describe as the corruption narrative. Now we know we know that corruption is an issue. However, in Imran Khan's casting of of the problems of Pakistan, the entire economic um, Issue, all the economic issues that Pakistan was confronted with, according to Imran Khan, seemed to be linked to the corruption native narrative. So essentially, um, in this Naya Pakistan, one would have a crusade against corruption, and once corruption ends, money would flow into the economy, and everything would be hunky dory. And he tied all the economic woes of Pakistan to to this uh, this narrative. And this this is problem because the the fundamental issues, the the structural issues confronting Pakistani the Pakistan's economy were fundamentally more complex than than just the issue of corruption as he, as he would would sell it as well. The tax base, as I mentioned earlier, was limited, and during Imran Khan's tenure, there was no real uh, grappling with this issue. There were there were nice uh, sounding promises to increase the tax base, etc. But nothing really happened in this way. State enterprises that were hemorrhaging were also allowed to continue. But I think the major issue that has led to disillusionment with uh, his government is the issue of the mishandling of inflation. Inflation is a major problem in Pakistan. By, by some counts, consumer price index is, uh, is went up to 13% in, in January. Food inflation is a major issue in Pakistan. Now, the Ukraine, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has compounded these issues by uh, leading to a hike in the price of fuel. And this has an impact on electricity prices as well. Now, Imran Khan's government um, announced if a the provision of subsidies to overcome this, but um, then again, you have a problem here as well. You have inflation on one hand, and the government wants to pay out subsidies, but doesn't really have the money to be able to do that as well. So, the in terms of the economic um, economic side of the economic equation, many of these issues that he he had promised to deal with have not been dealt with. The corruption narrative seemed to be uh, the central facet of his uh, his his uh, rhetoric. And inflation has become a major, major problem. Now, if we turn to the political um, dynamics that that have taken place um, since he came to power, as I mentioned earlier, there were you know there were hopes of a new dawn. This was the second time, a, a, only the second time in Pakistan's history that uh, a, a uh, elect, elected government was um, was was taking over from another elected government. But what we find is, right from day one, we actually we actually see that. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't so much of a new dawn as pretty much more of the same. 
um, to, to win the elections for the Imran Khan's party, the PTI, um, had realized that they need to win over influential people. And so essentially they, they cast their net wide, incorporated what we, with those who study Pakistan called the electables or politically powerful traditional elites, feudal leaders and spiritual authorities who essentially have a social political dominance in specific areas and can ensure political victory in those areas. So, and these, these, these electables have traditionally been um, associated with the PPP and the PMLN. Uh, Nawaz Party's part, Nawaz Sharif's party. And these were incorporated to the PTI. And this was fundamental in them winning the province of Pakistan, uh, province of Punjab in Pakistan um, in the elections as well. But there was also another issue which I suspect we might talk about further, which is that from day one, if you if you pardon my uh, my cricketing, the use of a cricketing metaphor here, from day one there have been accusations of match match fixing against uh, Imran Khan and this is the this is because um, what you find you know the, the military had supported um, his rise to power and we can talk about this in greater detail but um, Imran Khan himself has spoken very highly about um, his good had spoken about very highly about his good relations with with the military or the security uh, establishment itself and What's happened is over the years, the the system of governance in Pakistan has been described as a hybrid regime. Um, and what we find is we, we know that the military in Pakistan has always played a very important political role. But during Imran Khan's reign, we find a new sort of a discursive legitimization of this hybrid regime when Imran Khan would speak very highly about his good relations with the military, about being on the same page with them as well. And um, just, to, just to end the, the discussion of the political sphere as well, it's important to note that the way in which his government fell, the, 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 very, um, the very stifling of the, the attempts to stifle the uh, uh, word of no confidence, etc., by dissolving the, the parliament, that itself has an impact on, on the respect for democratic procedures itself. Thank you so much, Iqbal, for such a balanced and uh, comprehensive overview. I think you really set the uh, set the groundwork for our discussion here. I, I wanted to move to my next question, which sort of um, takes a broader look at some of the developments during Imran Khan's uh, term, particularly uh, with the constitutional uh, and legal developments that took place. So. Um, the dissolution of parliament that we saw um, has has been a troubling and reoccurring feature of Pakistan's political history. But we often associate these extraordinary constitutional moments as the result of authoritarian constitutional architecture, something which the 18th Amendment in 2010 sought to efface from the current 1973 constitution. How does the most recent dissolution of the National Assembly differ from or draw on these uh, legacies? Yes, you, you rightly note that um, the, the 18th Amendment was introduced um, um, to ensure that the president cannot unilaterally dissolve um, the parliament. So it was, a, it was an amendment brought in to constrain the, the powers of the um, the president to dissolve parliament. Related to this has been the, the doctrine of necessity, which um, has been um, discussed in Pakistan for, for decades now. Um, 
which allows um, sort of extra constitutional steps um, in the name of ensuring stability. Um, and um, they, these two have been used uh, variously uh, to justify certain political actions. Um, but this time around, um, it, it's been it, it, there's, a, there's a different route that's been adopted um, to dissolve parliament. This time around, parliament was dissolved by, um, or I should say dissolved on the advice um, of the prime minister, uh, Imran Khan, and it was dissolved by the deputy speaker. And in order to justify the, the, uh, the, the fact that they're dissolving parliament before, it, or essentially to, to prevent a no-confidence vote from taking place, they evoked Article 5 of the Constitution which states that loyalty to the state of Pakistan is the duty of every citizen. In doing, in doing so, they essentially imply that the opposition members who filed the no-confidence motion have conspired with a foreign state to act against, against Pakistan. Now, this is a serious allegation in itself. However, it also questions or it, 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 you know, it, it, it throws into question the legitimacy of the parliamentary process itself if, if the government accuses the opposition of being part of a seditious um, activity and going against the constitution. So it, it's, it's sort of an interesting, uh, it was an interesting attempt to use Article 5 in that way. Um, the, but if we look deeper at this entire issue, right, under Girding this um, constitutional issues that were debated in in, in Parliament is um, a very um, the very perhaps one could say the the lack of concrete ways in which parliamentary procedures have actually developed in Pakistan yet it's it's a work in progress so there was a lot of debate about if um, a, a, a the, the, the deputy speaker and not the speaker itself, but the deputy speaker itself had the authority to override um, a no confidence vote. Um, and, you know, if, if what is the procedure about um, calling which vote goes first, etc. So there was an entire discourse, the debate or discussion about the procedures of parliament itself linked to this. But perhaps more importantly is the a question over the authority of the Supreme Court itself. Now, the Supreme Court um, ruled that the deputy speaker's actions were unconstitutional and unparliamentarian and that there should be a no vote of confidence, which took place on, on Saturday. Now, um, the Supreme Court's decision has been hailed as um, having restored democratic norms. I would, however, say that um, we, we need to also pay attention to um, the Supreme Court's role in, um, in democratic processes as well. So I think we need to have a keep an eye on that because the chief justice uh, umar bandial had himself taken so more to notice of um, of developments in in parliament itself and the chief justice of pakistan has the authority to do this uh, unilaterally and this is not the first time that the supreme court has been involved in parliamentary affairs um, the um, before Imran Khan came to power, Prime Minister, uh, ex-Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif was dismissed um, on charges of corruption by, a Supreme, by the Supreme Court. Um, even President Musharraf, um, who, who had become the president, uh, uh, president of Pakistan, the Supreme Court has found his actions to be unconstitutional as well. So what, what I'm trying to allude to is that even if the Supreme Court's actions in this case uh, uh, 
seem to be in line with reinstalling democratic norms. The very fact that in Pakistan's uh, parliamentary history, we have a process in which the Supreme Court is involved in determining the political future of Pakistan is something that we should uh, perhaps keep, keep an eye on. And if I could just add a little bit, because you started with the mention of the 18th Amendment, um, the coalition that is in power now in Pakistan or establishing uh, power in Pakistan now um, has said that it is going to usher in electoral reforms before the before uh, calling for the next election. So let's keep an eye out on how they 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 uh, what sort of reforms they introduce in the process. Well, thank you so much. I think you've sort of really put forth the uh, um, historical context of things as well as uh, some contemporary de developments together. Um, you touched on the close relationship between the military and Khan's government. I wanted to sort of uh, provoke more of your thoughts on that. So Khan and his PTI-led government assumed power uh, with the backing of the security establishment in Pakistan, but it appeared, especially in recent months, there to be a, a growing est estrangement. Uh, what changed? And um, did Khan's opponents widen this divide, or do you think they simply capitalized on it? Well, um, you know, Khan is Imran Khan is often was often described as the um, selected candidate. Um, selected, referring here to him being selected and propped up by the uh, by by the the military. And these were yes. these are not my my uh, accusations against him. These are these are accusations that the opposition in Pakistan would would place against him. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that Khan has Imran Khan has himself. Uh, often spoken or used to speak highly about his relationship uh, with with the military as well, and um, in fact, his, his regime is often known as the uh, described as a hybrid uh, regime as well. It's also worth noting here that uh, prior to uh, coming to power or prior to the elections uh, leading up to the uh, in the, the elections of 2018. Imran Khan had himself criticized other political parties for cozying up to the military and receiving military uh, patronage from the military itself. But um, what we do know is that he's had good, strong relations with the military fairly recently. Um, but we did we did notice the rifts occurring in 2021, or publicly occurring in 2021. And one of these one of these rifts uh, was um, over uh, was a, dis a public disagreement over the appointment of the chief of the Inter-Services Intelligence uh, Spy Agency or the ISI in 2021. Khan Imran Khan had wanted to retain Lieutenant General Faiz Hamid, while um, the chief of army staff, General uh, Kamar Bajwa, had um, actually wanted. Deem Anjum uh, to to succeed uh, and and take over the the ISI. So this was the first time in which we we saw a sort of a public uh, playing out of of differences between uh, Imran Khan and the the military regime itself. Um, the other major issue that's played out in the past few months, um, but but really came to the um, to the the fore in the last few weeks is that Imran Khan has been very vocal about the call for an azad uh, in or independent foreign policy and the rejection of uh, in his words Pakistan's humiliating relations with the United States and this has further um, um, uh, affected his relations with the military this became um, very clear um, when um, General Bajwa the chief of army staff of Pakistan um, when he addressed the Islamabad security dialogue um, 
last week, just at the point at which uh, Imran Khan was supposed to be facing a no-confidence vote in parliament. And in his speech, um, General Bajra mentioned that the United States is an important partner for Pakistan, that and he used it, he described Rush, the Russian uh, action in, in Ukraine as an invasion that has killed thousands, made millions of refugees, and must end. So now, this, this, brought, this, this brought to light a, a sort of a different perspective on, on foreign policies as well. And the context, as I mentioned this earlier, because Imran Khan has been accusing the United States of plotting to, to effect his downfall. And also, he was confronted with the no-confidence vote and the subsequent actions in parliament, etc., reveal how he, he attempted to play an idea of, um, of a cons- foreign conspiracy against him that was spearheaded by, by the U.S. itself. Um, but I, I, so the, these, are, these are points at which the rift uh, came into the public. However, I, I would just like to throw something out there uh, for us to consider looking ahead that, you know, very often we approach the security establishment in Pakistan um, as a united bloc. There are different views and opinions within the security establishment itself. Yes. Um, and I think what we've seen is uh, Imran Khan has, um, has brought some of these to the fore. But he also, especially in his last few, uh, last week perhaps in power, I should say, he he perhaps tried to negotiate between these um, as well. So keep keep an eye on this piece in that sense. Um, and I'll just I'll just like to to to, to kind of end my answer here by just saying that the security establishment is also concerned about its own legitimacy and position as well. So while it supported Imran Khan when he came to power, they don't necessarily want to be seen as someone, as, as an establishment that is supporting someone who's losing uh, favor in, in the country itself. And in this light, there, there are rumors in, there have always been chatter about how close, uh, that chatter about Sabah Sharif uh, being close to certain uh, factions within the security establishment itself. But I would say that in this context now, what we find is rather than the, the security establishment having orchestrated the political shifts, I think they've. it's better to see them as having allowed these shifts to happen. I see. Thank you. Thank you so much, Iqbal. Um, so I, I wanted to move to my next question, sort of looking more closely at the alliance um, that looks to be now the ruling alliance. Um, so the political alliance against the PTI comprises of long-term rivals. At the same time, we see that the PTI has found quite a bit of success in recent local government elections, uh, suggesting that uh, as a party, it still maintains the support of uh, much of its political base. Uh, Is the anti-PTI coalition now in power likely to endure over the coming months, or is it simply an alliance of convenience that that might unravel. Well, for one thing for sure is that in the coming months, we will Pakistan will witness intense political contestation. It's you know if you look at the rallies, the protests that have been held, the press conferences going on, and and if you look at the domain of social media, right, it's already in election mode. And yes. so on one hand, you have uh, Imran Khan who spent much of the last two weeks um, rallying his support base. Um, and you know, and, and you know, it's important here, as, as, as you just mentioned, that the PTI has lost the majority in parliament, but it 
it retains a strong and loyal base. And so he's been, you know, he's been playing up his uh, battle against corruption, his battle against political uh, dynasties, and merging this with religious symbolism. And, and you know, th- this has this has created a, a strong support base among the middle class and younger Pakistanis. Um, he's also presented himself now as the lone figure fighting for the pride and integrity of Pakistan against foreign powers and, and local uh, cons- consp- conspirators. So you, you have him rallying his support base in that sense. Um, and and you, you very rightly mentioned that, you know, despite uh, the troubles in the center, the the PTI emerged as a as a as a substantial winner in local body elections in the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province, and and this just highlights the fact that you know we have to look at the elections um, domain in Pakistan in terms of national elections and provincial elections as well. So, so there are two battles being fought at, at the same time as well. Um, but even the other parties in the coalition that's against uh, um, Imran Khan, right? The the and and here you have the. Pakistan Muslim League, Nawaz, you have the Pakistan's People's Party, you have the Jamate Ulama Islam, uh, F, uh, Fazal, and you have the MQMP. These parties uh, are not ideologically united. In fact, th- there's very little that binds them apart from the opposition towards Imran Khan and the, and the PTI. While they, 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 they have some sort of a power-sharing agreement at the moment, they, are under, they themselves are under no delusions that, they, that this is a coalition for the long term. They themselves are braced for the, the upcoming elections. And elections, if, if parliament is to see its term true, elections would happen in August 2023, or happen by August 2023. But that's almost certainly not the case. And um, each of these parties are already involved in uh, mobilizing their bases, etc. So um, I, I don't I don't see it as a as a as a as a coalition that's going to last uh, till August 2023. Okay, Th- thank you so much for that. Um, so my my final question uh, is sort of looking back on the military, uh, but perhaps thinking about the military's uh, next moves. So um, the military in Pakistan, you know, many, many scholars and commentators have basically said that, you know, they're the kingmaker of, of the country. Uh, but the, estab- the security establishment now um, appears to have quite a complex and difficult relationship with all the major parties. Um, although there's much scrutiny about what the you know, the courts are doing and what the politicians are doing um, as Pakistan enters a period of um, prolonged uh, political uncertainty, uh, if I may say. Are there any signs as to who the military is likely to support in the near future? Mm. Uh Now, the, the the military has said that it's remained neutral in this um, current political wrangling that's that's occurred, and it uh, has asserted that it will continue to remain neutral. Um, but with the uh, chief of army staff coming up for retirement this year, it remains to be seen how detest, detached they will stay from the formation of the new government. What we know for sure is uh, the military will continue to have a important role in the political future of Pakistan. But as you alluded to um, in the question itself, they, they have they have no easy allies um, this time around. They don't have a PTI that, that can be propped up, etc. If we look at the individual parties that, that are part of the the, the coalition that that's that's um, that's that's managed to um, 
overthrew the um, the PTI government. Um, the two big parties of the coalition, the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, uh, Nawaz Sharif's party, Shabazz Sharif's party now, actually the, the uh, Prime Minister uh, to be Shabazz Sharif's party, and the uh, Pakistan People's Party, PPP. Both of these parties have been recipients of um, support in the past, uh, or have been have been recipients of support from the military in the past, but both both have also had uh, have blamed the military for destabilizing their governments as well. And so that's a long um, long history there as well. Now, if you look at another party that's uh, a key player in this this coalition as well, the Jamaat Ulamae Islam Fazl or F. They they are strong in uh, the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province, but they also have um, have support among certain religious uh, um, religious groups as well. They themselves have received support from the military because of their influence um, um, all across the border in Afghanistan as well. But they themselves have a tense and a relationship with with the military as well. If we look at the past few months, all of these parties have been critical of the army for supporting Imran Khan. The very fact that they describe Imran Khan as a selected leader as well speaks about their, 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 you know, their views of, of the military's role in, uh, in politics as well. However, in the last few months, each of these parties have also been trying to establish um, relations with the military as well. Um, and and uh, you know there, there's a lot of speculation about about the discussions that have gone on between these parties and the military. So each one of these mili- uh, parties, while criticizing uh, Imran Khan for closing up to the military, have themselves been involved in some sort of level of negotiations with uh, with the military themselves as well. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there, there's 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 a view that Shabazz Sharif uh, is he's close to the military and the military would support him for the short term. Um, this remains to be seen uh, how, how the chips would fall because um, I suspect there's going to be, um, in, in, the, in the upcoming elections, the, the numbers will play a role in, um, in, um, uh, in, in, in shaping which way the military looks because they have no easy allies this time. But all I would say is that history has shown that um, various leaders have gained the support of the military, but also been um, been dethroned by the military as well. And we don't have to look too far in, in the past as well. We can see Imran Khan's case, but we can also see Nawaz Sharif's case as well. Iqbal, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to South Asia Chat. If you wish to learn more about our work, please visit us at ISAS. Dot nus.edu.sg. Dot